Welcome to Impacting Jamaica, a podcast series brought to you by the Port Authority of Jamaica, Herb Cement, and the Sajikor Foundation. Impacting Jamaica shines the spotlight on the many but often ignored positive happenings, activities, projects, and investments at every level across every sector to inspire, motivate, and excite people everywhere. Impacting Jamaica is powered by Grace Kennedy. I am your host, Simon Flary, and in this special episode, I'm joined by a very special guest. He's a social commentator, he's a cultural historian, campaigner, and also an author. Thank you so much for joining me, Patrick Vernon, OBE. Hi, great to, great to be in your show. Windrush Day, we now have an annual Windrush Day, and that's all down to you. So tell well, me not I wouldn't say it's always completely down to me. I not mean, I have to. Completely, yeah. But you played a yeah. significant, important role in in campaigning yeah. for us to have a well, national Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, I have to recognise the work of Lex Sam King and uh, Arthur Thomas and Wish Foundation. In many ways, they they developed the concept that there should be a Windrush Day. So, so they they should they 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 had a role to play, especially Sam King, because he kept in contact with the passengers. On the Windrush ship, um, and then obviously as a result of that, there have been other people um, in Birmingham. They've been organising Windrush days for the last decade. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, there's been Windrush days been organised anyway. I mean, what I simply did um, was to campaign that why can't this be a public holiday? That was my original idea, and, and I made a documentary called Charm Life back in 2008 about Elder Eddie Martin Noble who's also from Jamaica, served in the Second World War. Uh, I got to know Eddie in his twilight years, and with his permission, I was I filmed his life, filmed him, and I made a documentary after he passed away of celebrating his life and the Windrush generation. And that's and I was approached by The Guardian. They, they used clips of the film on their website, and then I wrote an article saying that we should have a national day called Windrush Day to celebrate not just the Caribbean elders, but also recognising... Um, the contribution of other communities who came to Britain at the same time as my parents. You know, the, the people, so my experience with Wolverhampton, there's a lot of people from the from India came at the same time as my parents. And then yeah, later on, there are people that came from East Africa, East African Asians came, then yeah, people from other parts of Africa came. So there's been, you know, if you look at the NHS, classic example is the NHS, it's, it's made the, the donkey word, the key word that is done in the NHS, is black and Asian and other minority communities and Indian nationals. So the idea of Windrush Day wasn't just simply about the Windrush ship. It was about celebrating multicultural Britain and our contribution as migrants to Britain. That was the essence of, of that. I mean, I know people have different interpretations of that and I've been challenged on that. And the current scheme and the current National Windrush Day, which the government has adopted, just focuses on the Caribbean community, which I think was wrong in the first place, if you ask my honest opinion. It wasn't that was my that wasn't my original intention, but the reason why the government did agree to a national Windrush Day, I've been campaigning for the last ten years, um, the whole range of people, and it wasn't because I mean that only happened because of the Windrush scandal, because prior to the Windrush scandal, I'd approached uh, all the political parties, would they endorse it, and I'd, I had some individual support of MPs, um, uh, etc., and peers and stuff like that, and celebrities. But there wasn't people said I was told by people, Patrick, it's a nice idea, but it's not gonna happen. But then that never deterred me. 
But the Windrush scandal, ironically, provides the perfect platform for the government to choose to adopt National Windrush Day. So, yes, I, I, I acknowledge that I played a key part in campaigning for it, but we have to recognise that it started really from the time of from the late 80s when Sam King and Arthur Thompson started to organise their own Windrush Day festivals. Yeah, and I mean, talking about the Windrush scandal, you've been a voice for so many people um, talking about their stories and how they were wronged and how you know their lives were turned upside down by the Windrush scandal and because of people like yourself you know on at the media being that spokesperson you know people are slowly starting to get compensation and are we, we are seeing wider discussions in the community about the scandal and we are seeing people you know going in their family archives and checking if their parents and grandparents you know, may be affected. And that's because of people like you. I mean, how proud are you of the stance that you've taken in things like the Windrush scandal and when you are seeing results like people slowly starting to get compensation and their documents sorted? Uh, it's bittersweet, uh, Sana, because I said, uh, I, was, I was campaigning for the Windrush Day, National Windrush Day for a number of years with a whole range of organisations and individuals. Um, and then this, and then, how I got involved in the scandal is that I got approached. I used to be a counsellor in Hackney for about eight years. And um, and actually, while, when I became a counsellor in Hackney, I, I've actually stepped up, you know, I'm no longer a counsellor. I stopped down, stepped down about six years ago now. Uh, even though a lot of people still think in Hackney, I'm still a counsellor, but that's not a story. <laughs> um, but, but I developed a really good working relationship with the Jamaica High Commission. And I've, and I've worked with all the high commissioners over the last 10, 12 years. They always contact me for advice, for, for information, community information, and the whole range of that. Um, um, and, uh, and so because of my experience of being a counsellor, uh, I got approached by someone, a good friend of mine, for a mutual friend to help one of the Windrushes, who was a Wilder Romeo, uh, regarding his immigration status. And uh, even though I'm not an immigration lawyer, I, I read his paperwork, and I, and, then I, and I, when I saw all, saw all of those articles around, written by me, the gentleman, I realised actually this wasn't about individual these individual cases of people just because the way it was perceived by the government that all oh, these these elders or oh, they dismissed them, you know, they haven't looked after their paperwork properly, it's all their fault. But mm -hmm. I realised this was a clear class action targeted, particularly and primarily. At the Caribbean community, and the, and the vast majority of the people have been affected by scam were Jamaicans, mm. basically. 90% of the people um, of the Caribbean people, because we came in large numbers, uh, and also the time when we when Jamaica became independent in uh, 1962. So it created this was like a perfect storm, basically. And um, I mean, Awalda was from um, was from Antigua, uh, you know. And so I worked with him and his, and his daughter, Michelle, and then I, I presented, I developed my petition on the back of his, his situation. And there were three key demands in my petition, which to me is still the golden thread to hold this government to account. The first one in the petition was automatic status given to all the Windrushers. That hasn't happened. All people have, people have to go through the Windrush task force to prove that they're still that British. Okay, then it might be less onerous in terms of the paperwork they have to produce, but they still have to prove that they're British. Mm. And then they, they introduce new criteria to say that if you've had a criminal record, they're not British. Mm. 
mm -hmm. I mean? But as you know, recently, the government has given automatic status to 3 million people, Hong Kong Chinese people, just like that. And yet we still have to go for the mill of still proving that we're British. So that is that's the, the second golden thread, uh, uh, compensation for um, a financial loss and hurt, yeah? And I deliberately use that word financial loss and hurt, which covers issues around community trauma, mental health, uh, around hurt and acknowledgement of the hurt. And that, if you use that litmus test, uh, look at the, the role of the compensation scheme uh, and lack of the admission by the government of the impact of community trauma, traumatization of the hostile environment policy on the women's generation and other communities that, that haven't met that standard. And the third standard was to end all deportation flights and to review on a case-by-case -case basis. That hasn't happened either, because we know we still got deportation flights. Even during the height of COVID, we're still doing that. So to me, that's a, that was my original petition I did in March 2018. That petition, as you know, was signed by just um, about 200,000 people. But the petition said wasn't so much about how many people signed it. The petition went viral. Everyone knew the petition. Everyone used the petition. And people used that petition to lobby the government. And I know for a fact that the, Jamaica, the Caribbean High Commissioners use that petition also to lobby the government too, you know. So it's had a, so yeah, it's a, it's a massive impact. It's along with um, stuff done by the high commissioners, challenging the government and um, and um, the media, particularly the, like, the work of uh, Mila Gentleman and Nadine and other journalists, um, the work organizations like Liberty, um, JCWI, Run the Need, and other organizers, perhaps other organizations, we all work, you know, we're all separate, but we, all, we created the impact that put the government on the back foot. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we've got a compensation scheme, task force. Then we had a window, Wendy Williams review, um, basically, which I submitted evidence to. Um, and I got to know Wendy very well um, through that process. And despite all the work, we're still. They have not the standards which are put in my original petition. The government has the Home Office has not reached those standards yet. They purport they have. They use the expression of right and the wrongs, but I don't think that fully understand the concept of right and the wrongs. Yeah. So there's still a lot of work to do. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, but it's great that there are lots of people who've now got involved. I've I've taken slightly a back seat back seat on this because. I don't want to be seen as the winnerish person. I mean, I've made my contribution. I still will be there to support people. And what I've been doing is more supporting some of the, the victims and survivors. So because it's their voices. So I've been helping them, advising them. I'm more working, I've spent more of my time working behind the scenes now than being out there in the media, to be quite honest. If you've noticed over the last year or so, I've just, I mean, so one of the things I did do was uh, last summer, uh, with my good friend, late Paulette Wilson, Ewaldo Romeo, uh, Michael Breathwaite, Anthony Bryan, Glenda Caesar, we presented a petition at number 10 uh, about, the, about the government to take seriously the implementation of Lessons Learned Review, which had an impact that forced the government to adopt it, the recommendations because there was a summit for nearly six months, to be quite honest. And they appointed some advisory committees 
stuff like that to you know, oversee the process. I'm not involved with that, none of those processes. When you're a campaigner, you never, you know, you never, you never get invited to, to the party, which is fine. Um, but you've created this environment for the party, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, so I'm not, I don't sit on any of these committees run by the government at all. I've never been approached, never been invited. Uh, they have other people there. I hope they do a good job. They expect, if they do a good job, I'll be watching them, to be quite honest. Because, you know, half of them have not been involved in the whole campaign around Windrush. A lot, 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 I mean, lot, like myself and Jacqueline McKenzie, others who have been campaigning, raising concerns. None of us have been invited to the party. So we hope that these people deliver on behalf of the community and not be there just to create some superficial perspective. It's really important that they deliver on behalf. And if, they, if, and if the government's not delivering, then they should walk away. If they, if, you know, otherwise they become complicit and reinforces uh, another example of how we've been let down again in terms of the community. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that people admire about you, Patrick, is that you're always holding people to account and, and stepping on people's necks and saying, listen, this is not right. You know, and I think that's yeah. why people regard you as a community champion. And you've been very passionate about also changing the way black history is taught in the UK. You're the founder of 100 Great Black Britons and you recently published this masterpiece, yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. you, which you sent me. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful resource. Tell me about the driving force behind creating this and also the campaign in general? Well, the driving force was the actual, there is the campaign I did 17 years ago. 18 years ago now, believe it or not. I can't believe it's such a long time ago. Yeah. 18 years ago, go on. Um, and you still so look like one. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, precisely. So the original the campaign essentially was a response. Uh, when the BBC did their 100 Great Britons, not one black person was on that list. Um, and on top of that, the narrative that was presented around the whole selection process and the eventual winner, which is Winston Churchill, was that actually black people have not made a contribution to Britain, full stop. Mm. And I said, that's rubbish, it's complete rubbish. Mm. You know, um, so I, I went about, a, a, a good friend, uh, Dr. Nina Osborne, Angelina, who worked, we both worked on the book together, and I would pay special tribute to Angelina, she's a fantastic uh, person. She, I've known Angelina for 18 years, and she's a good friend of mine, and and she now she's a doctor, uh, Angelina Osborne, also of Jamaican heritage also. Wow. I think that's important. Yes, I mean, again, she's a, no, we have to acknowledge that, the sister, Definitely. my good friend, um, and she's a hard worker, she's a grafter. And you know, the sad thing about the whole history world, there are lots of people, I mean, like Robin Walker, another historian, also of Jamaican heritage. And there are, there are lots of people out there in the community of Jamaican heritage who are making a difference, but don't get, the acknowledgement and recognition. They get the recognition in the, in the community, that's important. But in terms of the mainstream, they, they don't know that we exist mm. at all. For, you know, they don't really know that we exist and we're making a difference. Unfortunately, they have to, I mean, my, David Osuga is a good friend of mine and I, and I have a lot of respect for David, but they have to look beyond just the, just the usual suspects. But the media is lazy uh, and, and, and and therefore they just think of, who can we think of? But there's, there's, I wrote an article um, about five, six years ago, because the BBC radio, BBC radio 4, made a, um, they have a series called History Matters, 
men's radio program to say where the black historians and they found they interviewed Dr. Hakim Adi, who was the first black professor of history in Britain, by the way, also featured in the book on the Red Black Britons. Um, he was, a, but they interviewed many white people and they came to the conclusion uh, there's no black historians. So I wrote an article and I gave the names of about over 100 black people I know personally who are black historians. I said, we exist, we're here. We're where are the black historians? It's an insult. Mm -hmm. It really is actually. Uh, so the Hundred Great Black Britain's campaign was a counter narrative to say that black people, we've been here over a thousand years, we've, we've contributed, we're black and we're British. And I know it's a very emotive topic, black British or British and black, call it what you like. Because some people say, I'm not British, I'm not black. And I respect that, you know, especially for people from an Afrocentric perspective, the, the word, they would see black as an Afrima. Uh, and, and also being British was also Afama. But I recognize, I do recognize that. Um, but part of the reality is we are British. You know, and that's been further reinforced around this pandemic. We are lucky in the West to get access to the vaccine and a whole range of other stuff because we are British. That's, that's reality. Mm -hmm. um, and we're black. I mean, I know that we're going on this journey around the whole stuff around identity. Um, and you have to work out where people feel still more comfortable using the word black. So we have to, so that's why I've chosen that. Uh, and hopefully it's part of a, a journey of uh, exploration for people to explore the wider African roots. I'm very proud of my African heritage. I've spent a lot of time doing my own family history. I go to, I normally go to Africa every year. I've not been for about a couple of years now because of the pandemic. And I can't wait to get back to Africa. Being on the motherland, just put your food in the soil, have that connection is really, really important. And I think that keeps me going as well, to be quite honest. That keeps me really grounded. Um, so I did a, did a campaign 17 years ago. It was it went very it was a successful campaign. It was a simple website where people could vote for the Great Black Britain, and there was so much media coverage. Um, didn't they create a TV show about it? I remember watching a TV show years ago where Mary Seacole was named the uh, greatest Black Britain of all time. was That was part of your campaign? There was never a TV programme about 100 Great Black Britons. No? No. Okay. Well, there's never been, no, 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 that's one thing I'd love to see happen. What did happen during the height of the campaign, I did get approached by the BBC, mm. uh, by the control of BBC Two, Jane Root. I went to White City. Um, have, you been, have, you seen, have you seen that spoof a program called W1A. No, I have you ever seen that? No. I was on YouTube and see it's 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 about it's, it's like a, it's a bit like absolutely fabulous, but okay. on the BBC. So I went to an office, about ten people there, all dressed in multicolored stuff. Really, it was just really weird. It felt really surreal. And um, so I had a meeting with her and her team, and she kind of apologised. And Patrick, you know, when, when we made when we made a TV program series and the campaign Hundred Great Britons. You know, you know, it, it wasn't our fault that people didn't vote for black people. Um, you know, it's the public, that's how it is. I said, I said to her, with all due respect, that's not good enough. The BBC is a, is, a, is a public broadcaster. You have a duty to educate and inform the public. Basically, that's your job. That's why we pay you money. That's why we pay our taxes for that to happen. So to cut long story short, we came to, they said, Let's, we, we want to make a TV series, Patrick, uh, on, on the back of, of what you do with your campaign. 
and we couldn't have a great back Britain. And I thought, okay, that's fantastic. So they put me forward. They they signed me to it with one of the executive producers. We played around the concept of developing the show, what would it look like, etc., mm. etc. Et and then, uh, then about you know about four, 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 five months later. So this is around this is around about two thousand and three, four, basically two thousand and four. Um, and I came back to because we announced the results. About the time we'd already announced the results and that kind of stuff. Harry Stevens, Great to Black Britain. The, they came back to me and said, Patrick, we've been we've done some market research and testing. We're not quite sure if the public are ready to have to make a TV program on Black British history. We, um, you know, we're not quite sure if there's, if there's an audience for this market. What we'd like to do instead, Patrick, if that's okay with you. We'll make a TV programme which celebrates some aspects of Black British history, but we'll have more focus on African-American history. Um, what do you think? And I said to them, you know what, I'm not interested, and I walked away. Mm. And guess what the BBC did? They still, they still went ahead and made a programme. And guess what it was called? No idea. <laughs> out, of Af- out of Africa. And it's one of the worst TV programmes you can ever see. So much so, not, not many people know about it. It was shown at, two, I think it was shown at BBC to like two o'clock in the morning. You know, back in the day when there was any black pro, it's, it's, different, it's, it's different now because they put prime time. But back in the day, you know, any black TV program, it was always like two o'clock in the morning. Two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. Like we haven't I'm, got I'm, to get up for work or anything. I mean, I mean, I mean, these days, two o'clock in the morning is not so bad because most of us are still up anyway, aren't we? <laughs> but, um, you know, but like then it was like watershed. It wasn't like watershed, it was like dead shed. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, and the program was so bad, and I feel I feel I feel sorry for Adrian Lester because he had to do the, do the narration of this, mm. uh, uh, and he was just celebrating. Yeah, it was about African American history with bits of black people. The high point of the program was uh, Lenny Henry and Frank Bruno remarking on Beyonce's physique. That was the high point of the program, sadly. Yeah, so that, I mean, that it, was too far. what year was that? Two thousand and five. Out of Africa. So not what even was, that long ago. That was like only about 15, 16 years ago. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things have progressed slightly. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, obviously things have moved on because obviously, again, David Olusogun is fantastic with his TV series. But at, at that time in two thousand and five, for the BBC didn't see Black British history as important as it does now. Mm. And now we're seeing a shift because obviously last yeah. year we had. Black Lives Matter, the murder of George Floyd, and that sparked yeah. all kinds of conversations and the yeah. need for more black history. I mean, what advice would you give to fellow aspiring campaigners in this Black Lives Matter era as somebody who's been doing it for such a long time? Uh, well, I think it's, you know, history repeats itself. So what, ha- what we see now is no different what we saw in the 1990s with the murder of Stephen Lawrence. It was no different what we saw in the 1980s when we had the uprisings in Bristol. It was no different what we saw in the 1960s with um, the Mangrove Knife, the Black Power Movement. It was no different to the early 60s when we had the, um, the campaign for gay racial discrimination, the campaign for the first uh, race equality legislation in 1965. It was no different to Harold Moody, what he was doing in Britain, legal culmination in the 1930s. It was no different to, um, you know, it was, you know, with, you know, it, and you could go on each, each 20, 30 years, you go back to Equiano, the 8th century. You could, you know, basically it's ongoing that the, the battle for our rights, our human rights, 
as you know, this is like, we've had 400 years of fighting for our human rights, basically. In many ways, our fighting for our human rights is probably even longer than the African American history of civil rights movements, believe it or not. Mm. You know, and so we, it's like one step forward, two steps back. So at this present moment of time, it feels like one step forward, but history will tell us that it will be two steps back at some stage. And, you know, and we have to keep on campaigning, articulating our rights, feeling, validating our lived experiences, because often part of the process of structural racism is to negate our lived experiences and, and to validate, validate who we are and our achievements. We always focus on the negative. Um, there's a concept called Afro-pessimism that, that, which is about that we're made to feel that we're suffering all the time. So as long as, as, long as we're in that mindset of suffering or sufferation, mm -hmm. we don't have that, we can't, then we're, not, we're not given permission to, to, be, uh, to aspire and that's be aspirational. I mean, that's why I love Star Trek and sci-fi because, and Afro, particularly Afrofuturism, because Afrofuturism, you have the option to think what's possible. You're allowed to think what is possible. You can create your own futures, what is possible. And I think that's really important for young people and for all and for, and people and, and older people as well. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the future there. I mean, what do you think the future will look like in this country because of your projects, your campaigning, your books, your initiatives, your talks? I mean, what does the future look like because of Patrick Vernon? I, I don't know. I mean history will tell itself. So, you, you know, history will, history will tell whether I've made impact. I mean, I've made some impact, you know, you know but history will tell, you know, long after I've gone, what's my true impact. At this present moment of time, I'm still alive. I'm still doing stuff that I'm doing. Uh, and um, that's what I can say. Uh, you know, history, will, history will, will be a marker and a barometer uh, as well. Listen, Patrick. It has been an honour to speak to you today. I want to thank you for joining me on Impact Jamaica, Boosting a Nation. And while you're here, I want to give you a salute and give you your flowers for being a voice for us when nobody else really wanted to speak up, but for also for your tireless campaigning, you know, mm -hmm. and for being so resistant and brave and like you said that that maroon spirit is definitely in you so thank you so much for joining me on this podcast no problem at all and um, good luck with the rest of your shows and um, thanks to jamaican cleaner for uh, acknowledging me thank you so much i was speaking to patrick vernon obe social commentator campaigner cultural historian author and of course community champion and my friend and brother Thank you so much. Impacting Jamaica was brought to you by the Port Authority of Jamaica, Harib Cement, and the Sajikor Foundation. If you or anyone you know is involved with projects and activities that excite, motivate, and encourage, send us an email at impactingjamaica at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Do join us again for another in the series on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Stitcher, or on Deezer. You can also visit us at impactingjamaica.com. Impacting Jamaica is powered by Grace Kennedy.